ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We are live, we're here, and we've got a great show for you guys today. If you want to participate, you can. Call us on the phone, find us on the web, or tweet us on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of great topics today. And today we've got a behind-the-scenes look into the international relief agency, Doctors Without Borders, with Tennessee surgeon Dr. Thomas Krieger. Dr. Krieger served in Liberia, Darfur, Nigeria, and Sri Lanka. He's also featured in a new documentary called Living in Emergency. Now, if you've got a question for Dr. Krieger, this is the time to contact us. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. And our email is sol at reachmd.com. And so what else is on our minds today? Well, how about we take a look at some of the most innovative health inventions and gadgets of 2009. Nice. For instance, how about surgical sponges that alert doctors are still inside the body before the patient's sewn up? <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> or the stethoscope that beams heartbeats to a doctor's computer via Bluetooth and renders the pattern virtually in real time. And don't forget, we'll also discuss the case of a man presumed comatose for 23 years after a near-fatal car crash, but now thought to have been conscious and paralyzed the whole time. Details and some recent controversy over it coming up. Yeah, we can't make fun of that one. And last but not least, another instance of stolen private information from a managed care company. All on this week's Second Opinion Live. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. We can definitely make fun of that last one, I would say. But first, our regular feature in which we review curious news headlines from the world of medicine. So you may have heard about the Belgian car crash victim diagnosed in a vegetative state since the 1980s but was recently reported to have been conscious the whole time. Popular news reports have him talking about his experiences and talking, we have to put in quotation marks, he's using a computer to type messages. So let's get into this story, Michael. You know, there, there was a movie last year called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which mm. was just about a patient like this who had a shut-in syndrome. But, the, the, but let's talk about this guy. This guy was 20 years old at the time of his car crash, and after using the Glasgow Coma Scale, which was assessing his eyes, verbal and motor responses, the doctors felt he was in a comatose state. But three years ago, a neurologist used modern scanning techniques to discover that the patient's cerebral cortex was, in fact, functioning and functioning well. And since then, he's been helping fine-tune the patient's communication technique. So the person that's on the forefront of this, his name is uh, Stephen Lawrence. He's a neurologist from the Department of uh, Neurology at uh, Liege, Liege. Liege University Hospital. Uh, and he says that the brain scans reveal varying levels of consciousness in as many as 40% of patients who are currently diagnosed in vegetative state, but um, none appear as extreme as this case. So he's really kind of making um, a career out of this one. And uh, for him, he's found that most fall into the gray zone between this vegetative state and minimal consciousness. Now, where locked-in syndrome falls in there, I don't really know, but I find that interesting. Um, in this case, the patient seems to have been provided with a touchscreen keyboard to communicate, and a speech therapist is helping uh, in moving his finger letter by letter. Now, Loris claims that he's run various tests over three years uh, when it was first in, um, uh, discovered to verify that this is the patient talking. Now, first of all, any French words like Liège, leave them to me. Right? <laughs> I will do so. Second of all, you know, this is called, <laughs> this is called facilitated communication. And it's really been called into question by some professionals. One bioethics professor calls this form of communication Ouija board stuff. Mm -hmm. The words of the person doing the facilitating rather than the patient. You know, and this really brings up, I think everybody remembers this classic Clever Hans case uh, in which this um, horse 
was uh, giving correct answers to math problems by watching its owner and the expressions of its owner. And there's been all sorts of controversy over facilitated um, communication with autistic patients, with children who are being aided um, in using these keyboards. And then it's discovered that several of them with peer-reviewed research are actually just... um, being uh, communicated through the therapist. The therapist actually... Right. But there's, an, but there's an important point here. Whether or not the communication is facilitated or not, there's a really good chance this guy's awake and locked in somehow. And so you really need to be careful. If you read the stuff he was writing on, on the computer, he could hear everything going on and people were kind of callous and sharing things in front of him because they thought he was just not there. And, and I, th- I think we all have been around patients who are comatose or under some level of anesthetic coma and you have to watch what you say. People hear it or, or could hear it. Let's put it yeah, that way. It's definitely a good take home that uh, bedside manner really counts no matter who or what you think their functional level is. Yeah. And, you know, this is not a funny story. It's actually a pretty scary story when you think about people that may be more conscious than we think that, that we don't think they are. And we're treating them, you know, as though they're, they're already gone or they're vegetative. And uh, imagine being in that situation. I can you, you have to see the movie, yeah, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's terrifying because it's told from the patient's point of view. You see it through a fisheye lens out of his face. All right, moving on. This week, we wanted to bring out something a little more seasonal. And what's more seasonal than a year-end wrap-up is what I say. Ho, ho, ho. Christmas is seasonal. <laughs> Our wrap-up, though, I like this. This is a great topic. It's about some of the more interesting health and medical products brought to market this year. The magazine Popular Science has a complete list of their favorite products, recipients of their Best of What's New Award besides our show. Mm-hmm. And we're going to share a few of the picks that we liked. There are so many to choose from, but we're going to start with the breathalyzer for your hands. <laughs> I just love even saying that. So some University of Florida researchers have developed a new technology to help reduce hospital-acquired infections. Now, their sensor system sniffs your hands uh, to see whether you use soap or hand sanitizer. And here's how it works. The hospital worker passes the hands under a wall-mounted sensor after washing, and wirelessly, the sensor transmits the data to a badge being worn by the worker. So when the worker approaches a patient, that monitor detects Uh, the signal from the badge, and if too much time has passed since the washing, the badge vibrates as a reminder to rewash. The system's called High Green. It logs the frequency of hand cleaning and patient contact, and apparently during a five-month field test of High Green at the University of Florida's Medical Center, infection rates dropped to zero. Wash your hands. It says, wash your hands. Okay. (laughs) All right. How about smart surgical sponges? Not exactly. They're not that smart. They can't pass exams. But another wireless technology invention involves surgical sponges that do communicate. It's called, they're called clear count. And the sponges send out unique radio frequency signals, enabling a doctor to wave a radio frequency wand over the surger, surgical patient to ensure no sponges are inadvertently left behind after procedure. Get me out, please. Nice. Nice. Let and I think out. while we're on that subject of smart tech, we should probably mention the smarter stethoscope. Uh, even smarter than your stupid surgical sponges, Michael. Because this is a new Littmann electronic stethoscope. It's called the Model 3200 with the Zargus CardioScan. That's not the newest thing altogether, but this one uses Bluetooth technology to transmit a, geog- um, a graphical representation of the sounds to any nearby computer, which I think is called phono- uh, phonocardiogram. And the software analyzes the data, helps diagnose the problem, 
um, maybe store the scan. The really imp important thing here is that it can email it to a specialist and it can do it immediately. That's this is something that I think that was new. Now, when I was in school, we got Lippmann stethoscopes free from pharmaceutical companies. This is seven hundred dollars. Yeah. Think they're going to give these out? You didn't get these ones. I can All right. That. And no tech watch is complete without <laughs> the lung flute. This lung is my flute. favorite. This looks like a New Year's Eve little horn thing that you blow. Device just received FDA approval. A read. This is a read instrument that sends a steady sixteen hertz vibration into the user's chest, dislodging mucus in the lungs with just 15 to 20 puffs of air. Mm. It should prove effective for those with, with obstructive pulmonary disease or for collecting deep lung sputum samples. They show actually show a video of this on the website. It's mm -hmm. fascinating. It doesn't really make any sound. It's so low, and it's just like blowing air, and this little thing ripples. And supposedly, it's, it's very good for people with tuberculosis. It's yeah. very inexpensive right now. Now that it's been approved, the price may go up. But, so uh, not the most effective for New Year's celebrations, I take it. Uh, no, I, I'm not going to get one because I can buy them for like 39 cents at the local store. But but these are this this just this is just a touch. We just, we just touched on four items. Um, Popular Science has le many many more listed, and it's really worth a read if you can get to the magazine because there's great stuff here. And and this is this is medicine of the yeah, future. I'm sure, we'll come today. Back to it, yeah. We'll do this every year. Well, we're going to cover a few more if we can. All right. All right. Well, now we'd like to welcome our guest for this week. He's a surgeon currently practicing in Nashville, but unlike the vast majority of us, he's also practiced in war-torn countries from Liberia to Darfur, Sudan, to Nigeria, to Sri Lanka. He's a Nashville cat. In 2005, Dr. Krieger closed his private practice of 20 years and went to practice overseas as part of Doctors Without Borders. That's Médecins Sans Frontières in French for you. His first mission took him to Liberia, and since that time, he's worked in three other crisis zones. And Tom was one of four doctors featured in a new documentary about Doctors Without Borders called Living in Emergency, which recently premiered in select theaters nationwide. He's since returned to private practice in the U.S. Tom, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining our show. Hey, Tom, uh, the first question is, can, can you tell us at what moment in your career, was there some decisive moment when you decided Doctors Without Borders was for me, I'm, I'm out of here? No. Okay. <laughs> but there, was, there were those times where, like a lot of physicians, you would go and volunteer for a week in Guatemala or Nicaragua or one of those where they have uh, surgical or medical missions and work. And then I also... Uh, was one of those physicians that had gone to school in Guadalajara for a year in Mexico back when, you know, it was really difficult to get, you know, the application process was difficult to get in. And so I spent a year down there in medical school, and then I returned. Rather than transfer back, I started over again. So I picked up some Spanish and, and got bit with the bug of uh, wanting to work in developing countries. So what what was it that made, when you decided to do it, it's like, hey, this sounds neat, I'll go? Yeah, you know, I just, I'd been wanting to do it for years. My wife's a physician, and uh, it was nice because I think she got tired of listening to me, you know, whine about it. And finally she said, look, you know, I'll I'll kind of carry us financially and go off and do your thing, you know, because I'm tired of your whining. And both <laughs> of our kids were old enough that they'd been off to college, so uh, it was it was kind of a dream of mine to work overseas, and it was it really met up with all my anticipations. It was really exciting. That's great. I'm going to whine to my wife about going to live in the south of France. I think it can work. Uh, I'll whine up. <laughs> Highly humanitarian, Mike. You know, yes. in the OR, whining works so much better than complaining. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think Michael will be doing us all a favor if he uh, headed out there. Um, my question um, for you is, I mean, obviously, um, in the documentary, you 
you know, you had this uh, very reflective um, portrayal in it. I mean, you were able to, to talk about some of your motivations and how long of a process it was for you to um, to actually kind of get to the point where you could say, I'm going to get out there and go. But a couple of things that you said really struck me um, that I hope others have a chance to see. And you said at one point that um, you thought that sometimes you have to leave what you're doing in order to find uh, what it is that's missing. Um, and in some part, you felt like it was still a selfish thing that um, fixing other people seemed to fix yourself. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that a little bit, because I thought that was a very profound uh, statement that you made when you were right in the thick of things, just having gotten there and and starting uh, your work. Yeah, you do reflect on your motivations in doing something like that, and I think many many people have the view of the heroic, you know, uh, doctor going over to uh, the Albert Schweitzer, you know, type, uh, you know, uh, character. And I guess from my particular point of view, it it seems like so many of our motivations are rooted a lot more selfish than we will really admit them to be. And uh, I know when I was gone, my, my wife questioned those. And when I got back, you know, it's like, you know, there's the issue of trust. You know, when your partner is gone, there's the issue of, uh, you know, being in a danger zone, perhaps, uh, and and how you know that affects your family. I mean, it's not just a decision you make for yourself, and uh, and then it's a, a financial decision because you take a hit doing that. I mean, the, you're not really a volunteer with them. They they have a a very low salary, which is basically pays very little. But uh, uh, you know the. The motivations that we all have in doing what we do many times are, are at root a lot more. Uh, I think if we dissect those, we would be, you know, we would, we would find a lot of other darker and more confused motivations than we would otherwise admit to. And I think for myself, it, uh, you know, the burnout of 20 years of practice that I think every physician faces, uh, and and just the frustration and, and sometimes the sheer triviality of what I did and all the motivations that I originally had when I wanted to go to med school and, and do these things, you know, it, it, it looked like I was just, you know, in a business, uh, a businessman. And uh, I'd, I'd lost the sort of the spark or the excitement for, of all the motivations you had when you were young to go into this kind of work. So I kind of refound that uh, overseas. Well, I'm going to play on what Matt asked in the last question, where you say you have to get out of your life to look at your life, and you have to take the fish out of the water so it really sees the water. And to me, medical practice, and, and there's all kinds of hints through um, your, your, write, your speaking in the movie, suggests that medicine, as I see it, is a spiritual pathway. You learn about yourself from your patients over your career. So obviously, when you got away from your family and your, career, your 20 years of career, you must have learned something about yourself. So what did you learn about yourself, as a, first as a doctor and secondly as a human being while you were doing this work? Well, I think you you see your, you see yourself in a different way, and you reframe what you do. I think you know you reframe your life, you reframe your view of the culture you come from and the cultures that you see, and uh, it it was it's a lot like when I've been gone from home for a couple of weeks and I come back and I'm driving down the street and everything looks just a little bit a kilter, a little bit odd and. When you leave, it's it's uh, and you work for a period of time, 
you find that at root many people have the same needs. You know, they suffer in the same way. You can connect with them in the same way. And, uh, you know, when you deal with people when they're at their most vulnerable, it gives you, uh, you know, you, you want to really appreciate the responsibility that that entails and the privilege that it is because, again, in that interaction, you know, it sparks things within you that give you opportunities to better understand yourself. And it's almost hard to really explain how that works, but it does. Well, it's why people take retreats from their lives, to take a look at their life. And a sabbatical need not necessarily be a vacation. It certainly uh, doesn't look like it was in your case. I mean. No, but at the same, by the same token, when I came back, it was I had kind of a renewed energy to do what I did. And uh, when you came back, how did you relate now to American patients? I mean, you were out there where people had basically nothing, and were getting medical care, and then you come back to America where we get people who patients are very often self-absorbed, and every little problem is a major issue. Uh, how do you relate to those people now? Well, it's still, it's still a problem. And uh, as I've said before, many of the things that you see that are, that are so horrific, uh, you know, give you a totally different view about human nature and motivations in general, and not necessarily a positive one. On the other hand, you know, you, you do have this opportunity to see such tremendous sacrifice and caring and, and love, you know, in other people and other places, and you realize you know, you, you see mankind at its best and at its worst in a lot of ways. But when you come back, it's uh, with a system here, there you can see how much you could do with so very little. And you can provide really good care with a whole lot less than you think you need. You don't need a CAT scanner. You don't need, you know, particularly for a surgeon. I mean, you know, if, if, if it barely hurts, open it up, look inside, and... uh most times, you know, you you find without what the problem is, and and you can actually do it fairly inexpensively, and you get back here, and the profligacy of our healthcare system, and the disparities, you know, between the top and the bottom, the the moth-eaten, you know, expanded, uh, you know, kind of healthcare complex that we have, sort of like the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower described. It's it's a uh, it's 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 grotesque the profligacy of, of that, and in some ways, our lifestyles. You come back and you walk down the aisle, you know, in the grocery store, do you really need to have, you know, 150 brands of cereal? I mean, is that, and I, I appreciate it, but uh, it is problematic. And it's like the scene out of Moscow on the Hudson where Robin Williams goes in the food store for the first time and starts to cry. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or find us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. We're talking with surgeon Dr. Thomas Krieger about his experiences in Doctors Without Borders. So, Dr. Krieger, I mean, this is some, a question that, um, that comes to mind here because you've been exposed, I think, to some of the, the best and worst in the case of, um, of working here and working in, in war-torn uh, regions of the world. Um, but you've noticed major problems in this system, uh, the business that it is. You've noticed, obviously, major problems over there. Where, ultimately, have you found yourself um, to identify with more in terms of practicing, um, having spent a lot of time out there now? It's uh, the, the developing world can't possibly, the, the gap that is developed now, 
the chasm really that's developed between healthcare here and healthcare elsewhere really cannot be bridged in any kind of effective way. Because, you know, when I was, uh, one of the places I was in was in Port Harcourt, Nigeria. And, uh, you know, it's like somewhere between 7 and 10 million people. There is not a functioning ventilator in the city. And, uh, you know, you, you have to have, with all the technology that goes into medical care now, with the CT scanners and the ventilators and all the laparoscopic equipment that I use in the OR, I mean, you have to have IT people and, you know, med techs, uh, uh, you know, taking care of keeping all the equipment functioning and up to date and the computer systems and so forth. It's becoming increasingly complicated and I think increasingly untenable in a lot of ways because it's, uh, it, it's so easy to take the whole system down. And, uh, you know, overseas, you know, you go back down to the sort of Lego building blocks of what you're doing and it's, uh, um, you know, it's it's a much more uh, sustainable system. I guess sustainability is is one of the concerns I have, and particularly you know with uh, so many of the issues that are being discussed around the world today about uh, climate change and uh, uh, you know the way way we live our lives, the way our economy you know seems somewhat tenuous. It, I worry about the whole healthcare system and how easy it is to topple it here. Maybe we need to spend more time appreciating what we have also. It seems to me that if some some of us took a look at what you went through, we would greatly appreciate the technology that we have here at our fingertips. I agree. And it sounds like, um, I mean, you yourself said while you got there, I mean, such an... Uh, an interesting experience in your in your behalf because you you're not only going out there and trying to adapt very quickly uh, and doing more surgeries than you could have imagined in such a short period of time, but you had a, a film crew with you as well um, that was kind of following a lot of the things that you were doing. What was that like to to come in on your first mission, which I believe was Liberia, and correct me if I'm wrong, and to um, have to just kind of hit the hit the ground running? Well, I, I didn't really know about it. I was I was there, and then. This film crew breezed in, and they were filming me, me no more or differently than anybody else, you know, on the um, hospital team. And uh, it really was, you know, they they said, "Look, if you don't mind us filming, you know, it may help uh, MSF uh, Doctors Without Borders. If you don't mind, uh, you know, go ahead and sign here." I said, "Sure, signed it." And uh, and then I didn't hear anything from them for a year and a half later when they called, and I think it was. A lot of footage that they got then was looking for a story, you know, that they wanted to tell. And after they reviewed their footage, I think they honed it down to the story of two physicians who were on their first mission, two physicians who, you know, had been with MSF for a longer period of time, and uh, and then trying to juxtapose those two. Uh, I, I think, and then they actually came out and uh, you know filmed a short clip at, at my farm and and. Uh, uh, and and so I think that it was, uh, you know, at the time that it happened, it wasn't really like that for me. <laughs> they didn't really follow me around, and I was so busy. It was just they were always kind of in the way, actually. Yeah, I imagine. I was wondering how intrusive they might have been. Are you, are you, obviously, the experience changed you. Are, are you glad you did it, and would you do it again? Yes, and, uh, and, I, and I plan on doing it again. It's, uh, but it, 
it changes you in ways both, you know, seen and unseen and in good and bad ways. I mean, it, it changes you for the good, but in a lot of ways it also scars you in ways that you don't really recover from. Um, Give us one example of a scar that you got. Well, let's see, in Darfur, uh, you know, the Janjaweed had attap- uh, attacked um, some women who had gone out from the refugee camp to get wood. The, woman, the women went out to collect wood because they, they only got raped. The men got killed, so, you know, there's a decision for you to make in your family. And uh, so a younger gal who was probably about 16, a beautiful gal, had been raped repeatedly. And then, of course, at the completion of it, they just shoot her, you know, in the knee area. And she has a major arterial injury. Um, and uh, when she was brought into us, and, um, you know, that kind of stuff is, is uh, you see so many of the people that are willing to, you know, it's not so much their differences in their faith in the Almighty. It, in what I've seen on all the missions I've been on is how people are so much willing to dehumanize other people, whether it, it, it really comes down to more ethnic and tribal stuff. It's like they are less than me or they are less than human. We can thus treat them in that way. And, and seeing how low that that can get, intellectually I'd always appreciated that, but until you've actually, you know, you see it on a, on a wide-scale basis, it's, uh, it's hard to deal with. But as physicians, we have to deal with both sides of humanity. We have, and, and I think it's almost a good experience to see the really ugly underbelly because there's also the opposite in the world, too, in places. True. And you need to experience both of them. Two days later, a Janjaweed commander came in with a gunshot wound to his hand, you know, the usual small entry one side, you know, blown out on the other, and it was like about a four-hour case working on his hand. But, you know, and it certainly left me a bad taste in my mouth you know, knowing what they were doing to others. But, you know, it's not, you don't really make those ethical decisions there. The, the only ethical de- decision you have to make, again, is like they come in, knee-jerk reaction, you know, broken person, fixed broken person. Right. And, and and so, again, that, but then the reflection upon that later as you as you digest it, is, you know, stays with you. Well, thank you for sharing this with us. Our, our guest today has been surgeon Dr. Thomas Krieger. Tom, really, we appreciate your being our guest. This has been sobering. I, I didn't think it would go like this. This is Second Opinion Live, and I uh, hope we can talk to you again soon. Thank Hello, you. Hello, Dr. Bernholtz, Dr. Greenberg. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Bye-bye. It's dark and it's scary. I, I hadn't, you know, I did not know that we would get those kind of responses from him. I think that um, the journey for him, and as a journey for all of us, is a journey in, inside of ourselves. And well, after listening to that, I have to tell you, I really appreciate where we live and the system that we have. Yeah, yeah. I walked out of uh, out of the room after seeing the documentary with a completely different perspective. And you know, you always wonder: is that only going to last for a little while? If you didn't really experience it firsthand, um, are you going to become numb to that? I mean, he. Uh, we only get a very small taste of what he experienced out there and his colleagues experienced out there. And it really is, um, it is something that's very sobering. All right. Thank you. All right. And now on to the ReachMD Forum, Matt. 
This week we don't have any answers. Isn't that interesting? We usually have the answers, but we're just raising the question. It seems to pop up. I always have the answer. (laughs) Question seems Mm -hmm. to pop up every few weeks with unsettling regularity around the move to convert more patient data to electronic records. How safe is your data? Now, what's prompting this question is the story of the recent loss of health, personal, and financial information of almost half a million Connecticut residents. And it sounds like the information was on a hard drive that disappeared from the uh, from Shelton, Connecticut, uh, office of a managed care company called HealthNet, and that information was not encrypted and apparently included a lot of uh, social security numbers. That's usually what makes the news. But what baffles everybody, and including us sitting right here, is that the company delayed informing consumers as well as the state for six months. I know six that, that I, I can't believe that. But the question from this case is that I see, is, is providing identity theft protection, this is what they're going to do, for the more almost 450,000 affected patients enough? I mean, are they responsible for this? What do they need to do? I don't think that, that we can really easily keep up with the technology with all the jump drives and, and portable ways of having this information, HIPAA compliance or not. It just seems like it, we're, we're behind the curve. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'd be pretty angry if I was a patient in that managed care company. <laughs> and it, it, you know, you're, it's beyond your control. Other people have your information and they can lose it. But we have to be careful with this. You don't leave um, computers in the car. You don't have them on uh, thumb drives. Yeah, you definitely don't leave that stuff in your car. I cannot believe it. And we, we've seen other cases of that too, back in Utah and other places. So, All right. Well, I guess that, that about does it for us here on Second Opinion Live. We've covered all that we can cover in our time. And we got to run because Michael wants to start practicing for his lung flute recital. And I think his uh, dirty hands badge just lit up like a Christmas tree. Thanks Wash for joining me. us. I'm Dr. Me. Matt Bernholtz. Yeah, for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on Facebook. You can f- also follow us on your iPhone. And you can listen to this over and over again and listen to that interview, which is really great. You better download it at least. Uh, Absolutely. Until (laughs) next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMDXM160. This is Medical Radio Without Borders. And don't worry, we'll be sure to cover some more of those gadgets for you next time around. Absolutely. Happy New Year and more gadgets next year, even better ones. 